the Retrograde Approach Podcast, Episode 5, Endovascular Abdominal Aneurysm Repair Planning. Welcome to the Retrograde Approach podcast. My name is Dr. Yogi Sansukumaran, and I'm proud to announce that we're joined tonight by Dr. Sam Farrow, my colleague. Yogi, that's a very uh, auspicious introduction. Sam, you're one of the greats in the business. I always appreciate having you uh, by my side talking about uh, things of interest within the field of vascular surgery. And today, um, we're going to approach a topic which... um, uh, often feels like uh, a quagmire for junior registrars, um, and it's in regards to the planning of an endovascular abdominal aortic aneurysm repair uh, for an inferior aorta, uh, aortic aneurysm rather. Um, now, you and I um, from the get-go will state that um, the opinions that we provide in this podcast are those of our own and based on experiences that we have had. Um, however, We've had the privilege of working with some of the best in the business and hopefully we've learned uh, some key traits that you can hopefully use in your practice going forward. So that's our disclaimer, Yogi. That's our Lis- disclaimer. Listener beware. That's right. Look, yeah. it, it, the, the reality is that there are many ways you can approach this um, conundrum. However, um, there are some simple take-home messages that hopefully are true across the board um, and will put you into good stead as you progress through your training uh, and for those uh, who are under career registrars hopefully will help you engage in conversations with your consultant and trainees that are fruitful for your own education and training and perhaps also some of our listeners who are not vascular surgeons yogi will perhaps get an insight into why we do some of the things we do and why we think the way we do sometimes about evas absolutely and into the broader vascular surgical community um, that engage with us, um, the sonographers, nursing staff, and allied health staff who um, look after and care for our patients um, through the entire admission. Hopefully this is also a benefit to understand some of the challenges that we think about as we approach management for these patients. So Yogi, I uh, very vividly remember as a medical student watching an EVA and I thought it was the most boring thing I'd ever seen in my life, sitting in the cath lab, watching someone look at a computer screen, deploying a stent. I could not get out of there any faster, but now it's one of my favorite procedures. It's, it's fascinating because I think it, it demonstrates that um, your understanding and appreciation of the complexity of the problem um, has, you know, has evolved through your tri- time as a medical student and then subsequently a junior doctor registrar now as a consultant. Um, but I think vascular is definitely one of those specialties where it's in the eye of the beholder. Um, it's a thing of beauty. Um, and we are most definitely indebted in this country uh, through those vascular surgeons who went before us, who saw it as, um, a procedure of great value who took it on and has it and it has evolved in our training program is a definitive treatment modality um, and provide has provided us with a stronger armament for the management of patients with aneurysms and uh, we will be forever grateful for that 
So let's just start off with the basics, Yogi. Uh, in the very first instance, you need a good quality CT angiogram. Absolutely. So when it comes to requesting the, the, the scan itself, the principal thing that you do need to request, and it's different across hospitals, is thin slices. And most um, CTs, when they're done for planning, really need to be one mil slices. Uh, this gives you the best definition and allows you to really uh, get accurate dimensions uh, or measurements um, based off axial uh, scans as you start your plan. Now, Sam, it's in my practice that if it's the initial scan for an aneurysm and they've had no other scans prior and their renal function allows for it, uh, I typically will scan the patient's thorax, abdomen, and lower limbs in their index scan as a means of excluding other aneurysmal sites, uh, but also to get a good baseline assessment of their aorta prior to uh, intervention. I think also if you then find an aneurysm that's um, not suitable for a simple repair, um, it allows for then a discussion for more complex endovascular repair, such as a penetrate repair. There is nothing worse than having done a scan from the diaphragm down uh, for a patient who needs a penetrate repair and you end up having to come back to get a, a thoracic CT angiogram subsequently. Yeah, I, I mostly do the same, Yogi. The only difference is I wouldn't routinely do a CT angiogram of the lower limbs. I would um, thorax. Uh, abdomen pelvis or chest abdo pelvis CTA and, and clinical examination of the legs with a follow-up duplex. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry. And I think that's also very fair. Um, yeah, sometimes a focused arterial duplex of the popliteal arteries is a good way of resource management um, and can also provide better definition of, uh, of the patient's uh, anatomy. Um, however, um, institutions vary in terms of how best to approach this problem. So Yogi, do you remember uh, what percentage of patients with a AAA have a popliteal aneurysm? Roughly. Uh, yeah. So uh, the, the numerical value for this is always varied depending on the text that you read. Um, however, um, about uh, a quarter of patients with an aneurysm um, extending upwards to about 40%, 25 to 40% of patients will have a, a popliteal aneurysm um, and the number, and if you have a unilateral popliteal aneurysm, then you have, a, uh, as you can imagine, you have a higher risk of then having by a, a contralateral popliteal aneurysm itself. All right. So you've got your CT, Yogi. Patient's got a triple A, six centimeters in size. How do you actually go about planning your stent graft? Yeah, so uh, so there's a, a few considerations to take into account. Um, the ideal way really to approach planning is to be systematic. Um, and that is to take into, uh, to be aware of the diameters and lengths that you need to be aware of um, as you plan the graft itself. And the best way to do this is to really put yourself into a quiet room with the scan in front of you and a sheet of paper in front of you. So you and I both learned from um, consultants who routinely drew out diagrams um, and this allowed comparison between your, your plan and their plan as well as that that was brought up by the rep, uh, the rep for the company as well. 
And I think the best thing about drawing a plan is it allows you to appreciate the complexity uh, of the case itself. Um, now, when it comes to looking at features on the scan, the things that I look at um, would include the following. Uh, so I look at, the first thing I look at is the renal artery and which one's the lowest, and also whether there are any accessory renal arteries. At this point in time, I look for any suprarenal angulation and then also make note of any infrarenal angulation of the neck. I then move on to diameters in the axial plane. And the things that I would look for here would include the infrarenal aortic neck diameter and the infrarenal aortic neck length. Um, I would take multiple um, neck diameters across the length of the neck and in particular, look for the presence of any infrarenal thrombus, particularly aiming um, really for neck that has less than 25% of its circumference with thrombus, as well as a thickness of less than two mils. Uh, in the axial plane, I then also look at the aneurysm sac size diameter, the aortic bifurcation diameter, um, as well as the common iliac artery diameter, proximal, mid, and distal, and occasionally take more than three diameters to get a feel for the uniformity of the vessel itself. I then progress on to take measurements of length. So the neck length as previously mentioned, as well as a length from the lowest renal to the aortic bifurcation. This length is particularly important as it allows you to give, uh, to be able to determine whether there's enough length for the, um, for the contralateral limb uh, to open up. And then I subsequently take a measurement from the aortic bifurcation to the iliac bifurcation. I also take the opportunity then to look at angles, um, in particular the um, clock face angles that the renal arteries come off the aorta, the internal iliac artery origin off the iliac bifurcation as well. Uh, finally, I look at access vessels, in particular the femoral and iliac artery diameters, as well as the tortuosity of the iliac arteries, which is an important consideration uh, when determining the side that the main body will be advanced and also the difficulties that may be encountered with cannulation of the contralateral gait. Other considerations I do take into account include the um, lumbar vessels, in particular if there's any large lumbar vessels or if the IMA is present in large and in particular diameters greater than three mils given that there's a higher risk for a type two endoleak. Overall, Sam, they, these, are the, these are the baseline measurements that I take into account and are often written out in great detail in my preoperative plan. Um, and then subsequently, uh, the other, other things that I do document include the patient's medical record number, the date of the scan, as well as the renal function of the patient. Now, Sam, one of the things um, with measurements of a CT um, without planning software is the accuracy of the diameters that are uh, obtained. What are your thoughts in regards to the importance of um, centerline measurements versus axial measurements and what do you do in your practice? So basically, I appreciate that centerline measurements are really the gold standard way of um, getting an accurate idea of the true diameter of a vessel. However, in practice, I think only a small handful of us in Australia really have access to Terra Recon or sophisticated planning software. So most of us would plan off the hospital systems or the hospital's PAC systems. 
um, or we would uh, plan off a rather or somewhat more rudimentary software program such as Osirix or Horus. Uh, in my own practice, to be honest, I would usually plan off pack software or Horus, and I would be looking at just realistically uh, getting a, a measurement of the neck or the vessel of interest in the coronal plane um, from outer wall to outer wall. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. I think the um, the difficulty is access to centerline measurements as a routine. And uh, fortunately, we have um, great reps around the country who um, will bring along a planning laptop, um, which will allow you to get a better appreciation of neck diameters, especially in those tricky cases where your neck length may not be as long as you'd suspect. Yeah. So what, I, sorry to interrupt you, what I would do then is once I've actually measured the diameter of the vessel, I'll then have a conversation with the rep and say, Hey, I measured the neck is 24 mils. Is that what you're getting on three men's here or whatever software they're using, using, and they usually say yes or no. Yeah. And I think, um, I think comparison when it comes to aneurysm repair, endovascular abdominal aortic aneurysm repairs is vital. Um, we all do things slightly different and our interpretation of the data is just going to be different across the board. Um, and sometimes you'll be surprised in terms of how similar diameters can result in different plans. However, um, that's fine. It's about coming to a consensus in terms of how to best approach a problem. Yep. Um, now, because uh, the axial slices are taken with the aneurysm in various cross-section, um, the narrow diameter of the elliptical cross-section is probably more in keeping with the true diameter, and that's often what I take into account. The other thing I do take into account is the direction at which the aneurysm neck um, the trajectory of the neck and so you get a better feel for whether the diameter is truly reflective of it or not um though you and i both know we've been caught out before in terms of either oversizing or undersizing an aortic neck yeah yeah and and sam I, I, would you agree that all of this comes with experience um you know through training you will do a fair number of aneurysm repairs and um how you develop an, a strategy for measurement really comes from experience. Yeah. It's not necessarily just the measurement in terms of dealing with the neck. It's also some of the subtle features such as once you, I, I think it's probably fair to say most people would use a graph with super renal fixation or at least half would use a graph with super renal fixation, but it's the subtle things like thinking when I actually open the barbs, where are the barbs going to sit and is that going to cause a problem? Because I have had instances with before where the barbers sat into a curve in the suprarenal aorta and caused an endoleak because it's lifting the graft off the wall. So all those things about experience are really important, knowing what the graft is going to do, how it's going to handle the neck and how it's going to perform. Yeah, and that and that's a trial and error situation plus also experience from colleagues who've done it all before. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And I, And I think you touch on a very important aspect, which is, Aortic neck and its morphology is different with each aneurysm. Um, so you have the, the main ways that aneurysms, aneurysm necks are described are either straight, angulated, tapered, reverse tapered, bulge, or short. And that gives you an idea of what type of repair you'll end up doing. Yogi, should we just briefly define what a 
neck is for those who may not be vascular surgeons? Yeah, so the aortic neck um, is really the vital aspect uh, to the endovascular repair of infernal aneurysms, and it reflects the segment of aorta uh, below the level of the renal arteries uh, with a uniform diameter, um, which is the segment of aorta whereby the vessel um, allows for a stent graft to a um, uh, to basically efface the uh, the stent to efface the aorta, um, and with the production of radial force, allows for a stable platform for repair. That is to say, that to safely secure the aneurysm, the stent graft requires a segment of normal, um, a relatively normal aortic uh, wall, which the stent can then efface to achieve uh, exclusion of the aneurysm. Does that sound complicated enough? I would, I would just say, <laughs> for the non-vascular surgeons, you go, oh, that's a very good answer. It's the region of the aorta between the renal arteries and the aneurysm. Yes, though, um, you know, morphologically, it's most likely that the neck probably has some aneurysmal degeneration. However, Correct, not significant but, enough to be. But between the renal arteries and the AAA, there's a there's an area which we define as the neck. And why it's important, it allows us to seal the aneurysm. This is this is, for our listeners. This is how Sam and I used to study. What just just <laughs> subtle, subtle humiliation and heckling and abuse. But yeah, but obviously, when I plan an Eva Yogi, and uh, I think all the things you mentioned are really important. I think. As any vascular surgeon can tell you, the neck makes or breaks your repair. I mean, um, it's the one part of the repair that really cannot be compromised. And when we compromise on the neck and our proximal seal, that's when we generally generally run into problems. Yeah, and and I think um, that whilst there are many features that make an aneurysm suitable or unsuitable for repair it's usually the neck that becomes the discerning feature at the end of the day um, which can turn a, a simple repair into a complex problem um, needless to say that is also the advancement with endovascular aneurysm repair sam that as technology has evolved whether you believe it or not uh, the neck length has definitely reduced um, from requiring a minimum of 17 mils when you and I were junior registrars back in mm. the day to now we're in a year where you can get away with a four mil neck and anchors. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's really nothing. I remember watching a talk once where they actually <laughs> said, you know, how, uh, when you think of how big 10 mils is or how four mils is, you know, it's the size of really a bean that you would uh, like a fava bean or something that you would eat, you know, it's, it's, mm. it's something really, it's not, it's not a lot of, it's not a lot for a stent graft to seal into when you think about it. Yeah. And we're really, you know, the neck is really what's important for the, the radial force of the stent to efface. And um, without it, it goes back to the fundamental point of, is this repair durable? Which is the real question in this era of endovascular abdominal aortic aneurysm repairs. So, uh just an interesting point, Yogi, the different companies, Cook and Gore, which uh, obviously 
I think there are, th- there are really three main players in Australasia in terms of uh, brand of Stinkraft, but we have Cook, Gore, and Medtronic. Cook and Gore obviously recommend a 15 mil or greater neck length with Medtronic saying four mil with anchors or 10 mils without anchors. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, for, for our unaccredited registrars and our junior registrars, um, what stent graft you choose at the end of the day probably isn't overtly relevant apart from in a situation where you don't want super renal fixation where a core excluder is probably preferred given that it doesn't have super renal fixation. However, what I think is fundamental to your training is to be able to one, be comfortable with deployment and two, understand where you might use one stent graft over another. Um, They all have a, a track record and some units definitely prefer one stent graft over another or have one on the shelf over another. But as you go through years of training, the goal is to try and see as many different types of stent crafts to feel comfortable. Why do you think, Yogi, that uh, Cook um, recommends 15 mils or greater? Because, you know, very objectively, the design of a Cook and Medtronic stent graft are very similar. Yeah, I mean, it, at the end of the day, the cook, um, it comes down to the ceiling stent of the of the cook graft. Um, you know, the Medtronic's literature and the IFU regarding the neck length is based on their repeated tr- uh, assessment uh, over various uh, cycles in terms of that neck uh, and its suitability. Um, there's some of the data for the four mil neck is extrapolated um, however, it does provide an option and it is, it is definitely seen as a reliable option for consideration um, for those patients who are not suitable for a much more complex fenestrate repair. Um, you, you, have to, you have to take all of this with a pinch of salt um, and what you, what you end up practicing is really a reflection of what you've seen and what your experience with these products are. Um, and really at the end of the day, it's a real personal decision as to whether you would have, whether you were willing to accept a short neck with anchors as being your uh, primary modality of treatment versus an open repair in that circumstance or a fenestrate repair. Yeah. I suspect that uh, what Cook is saying is if the neck length is less than 15 millimeters, we think you should be fenestrating because I think, a cook graft would probably seal a 10 mil neck just as well as a Medtronic graft. Well, I think it comes down again. I think it all comes down to what you, what you're willing to appreciate as a durable repair in this era. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, in certain circumstances, um, a four mil neck with anchors, unfortunately is the best option you've got. Yeah. Um, and then I think you just need to be selective with your choice and you've got to also recognize the potential issues that may arise when an aneurysm doesn't seal as a result of that or does. Um, but I also agree with your point that um, yeah, with a cook graft, with a, a neck shorter than 15 mils, their recommendation would be to fenestrate. Um, and given that there's a broad experience of fenestrate repairs in this country and in our training program, we are definitely got a degree of competency to approach that problem. It's not an unreasonable approach. 
So Yogi, patience on the table, about to go to sleep. You're going to do an EVA today. What are you thinking? How are you going to do this? Well, you've chosen your your stint. You've measured it all up. Tell me, tell me, walk me through how you're, what you're thinking on the day before you you go to deploy the stint. Yeah. So uh, the first thing I would have done um, prior to um, all of this would be to ensure that I've got my plan and I've looked at the reps plan and hopefully looked at my registrar's plan and compared all three and picked out my stent crafts so they're in the room. Yeah, so you, you've thrown out um, your registrar's plan. It's You crumpled it up and you said, no, my plan's better. Keep, keep going. I've taken the plan out of the bin. I've unfolded yeah. and stuck it up beside mine because I'm, a, I'm, yeah. a, I'm an equal supportive I'm, consultant. <laughs> I'm a very supportive consultant. It's a great um, plan. No, it's a great plan. I'm supportive, and I and um and I believe that uh, registrars add a lot to the to my own learning and education as I go through this uh, career development that I'm going through at the moment. Yeah. Um. But I no, I, in, in all respect, I think all plans are useful and you can compare compare plans at the get-go. You learn something from your registrars and they learn something from you. So I yep. think that's that's the first thing. The second thing that I would have done is, uh, again, go back to the patient, make sure that they're appropriately consented, but also take the opportunity to um, uh, feel for their distal pulses and make sure I'm aware of where they stand preoperatively. I'd have a look at their baseline renal function, um, and make sure that the radiographers are aware of, of what their, what the patient's renal function is and whether I want to use full-strength dye or half-strength dye or whether I want to be selective in my choices. Would you um, use CO2 if you had to? Uh, I have very limited experience with CO2 angiography. Um, I, so the, my, my honest answer to you is um, I would – Probably, if 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 their renal function was reasonable, I'd still consider using um, just limited runs um, uh, to to plan and perform the EVA as opposed to using CO two. Yeah, if you really think about it, a lot of the runs we do for an EVA are probably not necessary if you really plan carefully and use bony landmarks very well. Well, the, or use true. fusion fusion software if available. I mean, I think that's the future. I think we're we're gonna we we are gonna evolve our um, accessibility uh, to all of this um, as as we evolve our own technology. The problem is it's not all readily available, and it comes at a huge cost at this point in time. Um, the other thing that I typically do before a case is also talk to the anaesthetist about the procedure that's going to be performed, what I expect the time frame to be, and include the nursing staff in that discussion so they're aware of any potential complications that I foresee, um, as well as um, pre- preparations for supplementary procedures if required, um, such as having an open cut down uh, or prepping the abdomen broadly in case um, percentage of the time do you think you uh, cut down? Uh, access complications do occur. Um, I have to say they are rare and I think they're in the ballpark of about 1% or less, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, so uncommon these days. There's, you can often manage most groin-related issues 
locally or with other percutaneous techniques. However, occasionally, um, due to no fault of anyone in particular, the vessel is brittle uh, and it, and um, the vessel either splits or is damaged and um, there is uncontrolled hemorrhage, which um, requires an open repair. Is that your experience, Sam? Have you do you find that the actual rate of open cut down for excess complications is not really uh, that big? Yeah, I think you know you're looking at the CT very carefully, and I think you know you can really predict who's going to have an excess related problem, and in that situation, you should just cut down. I think they can all be anticipated, to be honest. Um, you know, the main risk factors, as you as you recall well through your fellowship study, Sam, was the female gender, mm -hmm. uh, diabetics, uh, obesity or elevated BMI, mm -hmm. uh, or access vessels that are really less than six mils. Um, they, yep. That's where you're going to start. That's where you're going to hit into trouble. Yeah. So yeah, all those things are important, Yogi. And as I said, by looking at the preoperative CT for basically common femoral disease, you're going to be able to predict who are going to be the problem patients. In that situation, I really do have a low threshold for cutting down, but I think in reality, I realistically cut down maybe less than one in 20 times. And maybe when you do cut one down in, one in 30, one in 40. And when you do cut down, Sam, what's your approach? So I'm trying to decide really what I I'm trying to figure out is what are the chances that this patient's going to need a femoral endarterectomy at the end of this? And if that's the case, and that's usually due to significant common femoral disease, diffuse circumferential plaque. And if that's the case, I'd go longitudinal and be prepared to do an endarterectomy and patch at the end. If that's not the case, then I'm usually looking at an oblique incision and that's due, yeah. due to better wound healing. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so it, it's really a determination for any adjunctive interventions. However, saying that, though, through an oblique incision, you can always convert if you require um, to do further extensive surgery with a T-shaped incision if necessary. Yeah. I don't think anyone wants to do that, but that's your bailout maneuver mm -hmm. if required. Yeah. Uh, so, Sam, now the patient's... Um, intubated, ventilated, an anaesthetist um, says the patient's over to you. You've done your time out. They've given some antibiotics. You've got your shaver in hand. Now that breaks bring, brings back some great memories for yourself back in the day. First of all, I thought this was your operation. How does it turn into my operation? The way this works is it's a game tag. It's yours. Oh, okay. I think you're referring to the time... Uh, I was doing an EVAR and while I was shaving the patient, their blood pressure tanked and the anesthetist said, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I'm just shaving the patient. He says, stop, stop. His blood pressure's tanking. And three hours later, while they were still resuscitating the patient is being transferred to ICU and we hadn't done the procedure yet, we, that, that officially became the patient who was not fit enough for a haircut. Is that the patient you're referring to? Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, yeah, so look, uh, I think um, once <laughs> once you've prepared your patient, um, the next step, I guess, you think about is 
catheter, no catheter, I've now transitioned my practice. So I don't routinely put in a catheter for simple EVAS. However, for more complex endovascular repair or prolonged procedures, I would. Um, I just look at that as one extra um, potential source of infection. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of prepping the patient itself, I typically um, do still do a reasonably broad prep, um, more so out of um, warding off the bad juju. Um, but I think it's important that you prep nipples down to to just above the knee um, just so you're prepared for all potential eventualities. However, the reality is that um, the rates of conversion to open repair these days are still low and the quoted number is supposedly 5%. However, I would suspect 5%. that number is even... Yeah, though so I suspect Jeez. that number is smaller. Yeah, okay. It's pretty high. <laughs> I, I, that's right. I, I mean, I think that was... Definitely back in the year where I think endovascular repair was um, still being sort of mastered. I think we're in the era where that numerical value is definitely not as great. And definitely in, in my time in training, I don't recall uh, converting an endovascular repair to an open repair. Um, and I think that's broadly because of the fact that they're so well planned. Um, and as Sam mentioned previously, a lot of the patients you have on the table are not fit for a haircut. Yeah. So Yogi, um, with a patient on table now, what I generally do is I look at the pre-op CT and I look at what the lowest renal artery is. I would, well, what I then do is identify what vertebral level or what vertebral body would I find that renal artery? Now, if you're using a Gore or Medtronic that generally have a single sized um, main body, I sometimes consider opening the graft before I've uh, started the case. Um, at, and that's purely just to basically speed up the operation. So, Two proglides each side, Yogi, I think that's pretty standard amongst uh, most vascular surgeons in Australia. 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock. 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock. And then as uh, most people prefer, prefer after orientating the main body, that's basically just to see which side the, the gate's on or the contralateral limb. I'd try and advance the graft on the right side or the patient's right over a stiff lundequist wire. Is that fairly... Familiar to what to what you do, Yogi? Yeah, so um, you know the um, the the, the Lundicus wire is taken up um, once you've um, used a uh, your catheter of choice and a glide wire uh, up into the proximal descending thoracic aorta exchange for the Lundicus. At this point, um, uh, both the nursing staff and medical staff should get into the habit of marking the table to know where the end of the wire is. And it allows you to judge whether the, the wire is moved during the procedure. Um, and yes, by convention, most people would introduce the stent graft on the right. However, uh, you may choose to also introduce the stent graft from the left. Um, and that may be based on the tortuosity of the iliacs or um, the aneurysm morphology as this may uh enhance your ability to, to cannulate the contralateral gate. 
So yeah, so obviously if you're going to change uh, the side, the Medtronic E becomes a nine, the tick changes side and the the lines uh, with the excluded also uh, rotate from side to side. I The other thing I do, Yogi, is I put a long eight French sheath on the side I'm going to cannulate the gate from, either a 25 or a 35. And I do that because number one, I use the radio opaque marker on the sheath to mark where the aortic bifurcation is. So I don't need to continually screen up and down or do more runs to make sure I'm going to open the gate above the aortic bifurcation. And I think it makes cannulation of the gate much easier just to have a sheath basically right next to the gate and you can um, find the gate much easier. Yeah. I, look, I think that's a, I think that's a valid uh, technique um, though. You know, I think it's also fair to say that you can get away with a short sheath. Um, and often if you've done your initial run and you've included your aerial bifurcation, if you mark the screen, it gives you a good appreciation of where you, it's going to open. But um, can I say a lot of these procedural tips that we've come up with are really those that allow us to proceed with the procedure uh, at a reasonable pace at our level of comfort and all of you out there listening will um, pick up little different tricks and tips from other consultants, which makes sense to you. Um, but that's definitely a technique that is uh, something that keeps Sam happy during the case, makes him smile. It also makes uh, allows you to cannulate the gate e easily with the pigtail catheter, which is always a lot of fun. Like a wizard. Like a wizard. <laughs> no one applauds when I do that anymore. It's it's no longer a, it's no longer a trick that's worthy oh, no, of an just, applause. Yeah, I know. It's just yeah. So what? Well done. You you you've got to you've got to um you've got to sort of uh, graduate to the point where you're sitting in the control room hedging or sledging uh, your registrars <laughs> as they're struggling. <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier, I opened the main body fairly early. Um, once I've introduced it and got it to where I think. The lowest renal is based on the vertebral body that I've planned from earlier. I'd then do the first run, and then I'd I then basically open the main body and take the top cap off or whatever you need to do, depending on which graft you're using. And then that's really the first run I've done, and then I'll go on to cannulate the gate. Yeah, and so you're you're doing that through a pigtail catheter. Uh, what volume and rate do you typically use, and what pressure setting? For the initial run, the yeah, the aortic, yeah. Aortic. yeah. So I, I generally use. Um, you talked, you said it earlier, Yogi, that you use full strength or fifty-fifty. Um, yeah. I don't. I find the fifty-fifty just a bit too. Where I work, I just I don't get a good picture with fifty-fifty contrast. Mm -hmm. I think if you use the Visipake three twenty, you might get a better picture. But we use Visipake two seventy where I work. Um, so yes. I would for the first run, I use 20, 20 mils. At 20 mils per second. The PSI, I'm not quite sure what the setting is, it's probably 900 or 1,000 PSI. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, I think that's completely valid. And um, you, at the end of the day, you want to take a run that's consistently going to provide you the information you need. Now, some people take multiple runs as they deploy the neck, and I think that is also uh, a reasonable technique. Um, however, um, once I've done an initial run, I've got a bony landmark that I'm happy to base it on. I'm usually happy just using a single run to then deploy into the contralateral gate and to yeah. release the top cap, top cap as well. 
So do you get someone to mark the screen? Yeah, so typically I would I'd get someone to mark the screen at that point. Just okay. that allows me to pause, reassess the situation, make sure I'm happy, make sure the consensus in the room is happy, and then proceed. Yep. And then uh, once the contralateral gates open and the top caps been released, um, the stingcraft is now in position. It can't be moved. Um, you've now got to complete the rest of the endovascular aortic aneurysm repair. Um, so the only difference here, Yogi, if I'm doing an excluder graft and I've cannulated the gate, I do balloon the neck at this stage. Sometimes I do tend to find that the excluder, because you can reconstrain it, and especially if you've reconstrained it, sometimes I find that the neck just doesn't really pop open and engage okay. the wall. So okay. I, I, I balloon it at that stage. And I guess this is in a neck that's potentially difficult if you've reconstrained it and redeployed. Yeah, exactly. And the worst thing is when the if the graft drops down because then it's just a pain, pain in the neck. Okay. Pain in the aortic neck. <laughs> oh, I'm going to edit that out later. That's so bad. Okay, moving on, moving on. So you've cannulated the gate. You've now, because um, you've cannulated with the pig, you've saved yourself a step. Yep. Um, I typically at this point would twirl my catheter uh, within the stent craft, demonstrate yep. that I'm interested. And then I would um, I would also do a contrast run to demonstrate that I fill the stent first. Um, yep. I also will uh, remove the pigtail and put up a coda balloon and demonstrate that the coda inflates within the limb into the stent craft itself. Okay, I don't do that, but uh, that's a reasonable step to do if you... Mm feel so inclined uh at this point i would then once i've confirmed i'm interested take my pigtail up beyond the crown exchange for a pig uh for a glide wire position that within the with the pigtail catheter within the proximal descending thoracic aorta and then exchange for a lundiquist wire and again mark the table as i'm bringing the pigtail down at position that at the flow divider and then look to um get a measurement for the contralateral iliac limb by um, positioning the C-arm such that I'm playing the iliac bifurcation to demonstrate the internal iliac artery. Yep. Once I've done a run, this is typically a blowback run from the sheath. Um, I then measure out um, from the flow divider uh, using the pigtail catheter the distance and this will yep. then allow me to pick the the, uh, the limb, the ILEC limb that I would use. Yep. So you've deployed your ILEC limb. Generally, then you then have to turn your return your attention back to the main body of the device. Sometimes you have to recapture the top cap, deploy a bit more stent, and then yep. remove the delivery. Yes. Uh, yep. And then you're basically just repeating the procedure, remeasuring ILEC length. Identifying your internal, picking a uh, stent for the ipsilateral limb, and then deploying that. Yeah, I then typically will then coda the neck, um, the overlap segment at the flow divider, and then along the ilex limb on the ipsilateral side, for instance, and then swap and do that on the contralateral side uh, before doing my completion run. One thing I've done uh, recently, Yogi, I do find the cook sheets um, a bit long. 
and they're a bit um, they're a bit clumsy. And um, I have swapped them for dry seal sheets at the end. I'm sure the core people would be happy with that. But I do find that um, I think the cook craft has certain advantages, but using the dry seal sheets makes putting the coder up a lot easier because you don't have to deal with that long sheet putting the coder up and down. And the, to be honest, the sheets leak a lot less, I find. And so I, I do find swapping out to the dry seal sheets makes a cook craft deploy a bit nicer or the whole operation a bit cleaner. Yeah, it's not something that I do routinely, but I, I can see the value of it. And I think in particular in situations where you're conscious about um, acute blood loss, um, you and I have both been in situations where people have lost a large volume of blood just from the sheath itself and being unaware that the sheath was open. Yep. Um, and so you can be surprised by the amount of blood loss that can occur uh, during the procedure just from the sheath itself. Yeah. Also, when I come to close, I have the sheath reassembled. So if I had issue closing the vessel, I can reintroduce the sheath into the artery basically just to occlude it while I then cut down or sort out what I'm going to do. So again, it's a lot easier just to reassemble a dry seal than the whole EVA deployment sheath in that situation. Yeah, look, I think that's, um, that is a, a reasonable um option though in my in my institution the sheets are in reasonably close proximity so if i need to get a a large sheath i could do that um whilst putting pressure on the groin with a wire in i'm sure there's a medtronic rep just saying just use a bloody medtronic graft and you wouldn't have this problem (laughs) yeah look i think all all companies have their pros and cons for their use um and as trainees one of the one of the goals that you should try to achieve in your trainings to determine why you would use a particular stink graft at a particular time um, and be able to justify that to your colleagues and consultants. Yeah. And I think on that point, Yogi, it's important to keep using the different graphs from time to time, just so you upskill or not upskill, but maintain skill in other, in the other graphs. So when you get, you know, a problem in the middle of the night and you say, actually, this would be a better excluder case or this would be a better Medtronic case, you don't find that you're doing the most difficult case with a graph that you have little experience with, that you're kind of comfortable doing one with really Cook or, or Medtronic. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think um, most units have a workhorse stent graft. Yeah. Um, and a subsequent graph that's also available on the shelf. However, I agree with you entirely. The more practice that you have with the stick graph systems, understanding their IFU, understanding what's available, uh, understanding mm-hmm. the main body lengths, it just gives you that extra armament as you approach management. Uh, I'd love a rough little rule I've set for myself is if I can't do an aneurysm repair with a cook graft, gore graft, or Medtronic graft readily, then I should probably be doing the operation open or, or not at all. Yeah, and look, I think that the discussion regarding your choice of treatment is complex. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of preoperative considerations, but um, Sam, the overall gist of that comment really comes down to the fact that we are in an era where, mm-hmm. where durable endovascular repairs are what we seek to provide. Yeah. Um, 
and we have the ability to plan and prepare ourselves for graphs that will work and also prevent us from putting in graphs that are more likely to fail. Yeah. And really the goal of treatment here is to be able to delineate where work for a patient and where it may not. Yeah. Well, Sam, uh, I think that's been a comprehensive discussion of our experience with endovascular uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm repair planning. Um, like we said at the start, a lot, of the, a lot of the comments today were based on our own experiences and our growth as registrars and now yep. we take them to our consultant years. Um, and I think individually, uh, hopefully they provide you with some insight into some of the thoughts that we have. Um, but we would recommend that registrars um, look at what colleagues and consultants do and take all the things that they feel they would use in their practice. Uh, it allows them to then uh, prepare themselves not only for the fellowship exam, but their subsequent practice as consultants. Yogi, if uh, people want to find us online, where can they find us? So Sam, we're on um, at vascular FM on Twitter Um and also on the World Wide Web at um, vascular.fm. Also on Instagram, uh, you can search for The Rich Great Approach and you can find us where all good podcasts are found, Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Overcasts, etc. Just search for The Rich Great Approach. Yogi, until next time. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it.